I grew up in a time when television was fairly new and I was fascinated by it and show business was Milton Berle on television. So I thought, boy, oh boy, wouldn't it be nice to be around that atmosphere? So I answered the ad and a few days later, I got a note back from this guy who said, thank you very much, but we filled the job. So I took that note and I put it on the kitchen table and I left it there on the kitchen table. That afternoon, it so happened that my Aunt Estelle and Uncle Phil came over and Uncle Phil said, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking for a job, Uncle Phil. I said, look, here, I just applied for a job and I didn't get it. Uncle Phil said, I know that guy. And he called that guy and I got the job. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein. And today I talk to another Sid, Sid Gannis. Now I'm S-Y-D and he's S-I-D. Sid Gannis is a longtime Hollywood movie mogul who's been involved in many parts of the industry. He was, in fact, also the president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And I'll tell you a little bit more about his background momentarily. But he's someone who's worked with George Lucas, with Francis Ford Coppola. He knows everybody and is the nicest person. And it's just so interesting to talk to. I've met a lot of people like Sid, no one who is Sid Gannis, but like Sid, which is, you know, very successful, but started without any ivory spoons in their mouths. Started just as a kid, middle class or lower middle class, and worked his way through opportunity, through luck, through talent, to bigger and bigger jobs. You know, there are people like this, Mickey Drexler, who turned around the gap, turned around J. Crew, Ralph Lauren, actually, Ralph Lipschitz, as he was called, was also someone like this. I mean, these are people that they didn't grow up rich and famous, but they just made it to the very top. And in his own way, Sid Gannis did the same thing as well. And so he's a character. He's exactly the type of guy. You just imagine having him over for dinner or a glass of brandy or something when we're allowed to do such a thing again, and just talk and just sit back and listen to his stories, you know? You'll see in this episode, I don't really interrupt him very much. I kind of let him go because it's so interesting to hear what he has to say. He does his own share of interrupting, which is kind of funny. He's now running a company called Out of the Blue Entertainment with his partner and wife, Nancy Holt-Gannis, but he's had a really distinguished career as an executive at major studios, including Sony Pictures, uh, Lucasfilm, Warner Brothers, and Paramount, which is pretty much everybody, right? And I mentioned before, in 2005, Sid Gannis was elected to his first term as president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. These are the guys that put on the Oscars. And he held that position for four consecutive terms. He's been on the Academy's Board of Governors. He's been chair of the Academy's Museum Committee as well. And in our conversation, he'll talk about the Oscars. He'll talk about La La Land, which was not that long ago that it looked like it was about to win the Best Picture Oscar and then did not. He'll talk about Jon Stewart, who he brought in to host the Oscars and others as well. He was a movie producer for years. Among the movies that he produced were Big Daddy, Deuce Bigelow, I remember that, Mr. Deeds, the critically acclaimed Aquila and the Bee, which he actually co-produced with his wife, Nancy Gannis, and others as well. He's been really extensively involved working in China on various film projects. And that, I think, has been a really interesting kind of shift in his career. He's retired now. I mean, as much as someone with his Rolodex and his energy can be retired, but he's retired now. 
but he served 10 years on the board of directors of Marvel Entertainment until it was sold to Disney. And when Disney bought Marvel, wow, it was talk about a fantastic fit. Of course, Disney also bought Lucasfilm and got the Star Wars movies as well. So he was part of that as well. He's been at University of California Berkeley Art Museum and the board of directors there, the San Francisco SF Film Board as well. So really very active and personal friends and colleagues with people like George Lucas. And I got him to talk about all that stuff. We also talked about Netflix and Prime versus going to the movie theaters. No one's going to the movie theater now. But when you think about it, I don't know if this is going to be true when we get past COVID. I was about to say, there's no real replacement for being in a movie theater surrounded by strangers, all experiencing a viewing of a film, a film experience, all at the same time. It is something special, Matt. I mean, it's not always that way. The guy who's whispering to his friend, that's not so much fun. And the spilled popcorn and soda on the floor, that's not so much fun. But sometimes, you know, I've been to a movie and there's just something special about it. And everyone is there. I remember this happened. What was that film? Was it called Silent Movie? Or was it called The Artist? Won an Academy Award five or six years ago. And I remember seeing that at a film festival. And the theater was just packed, packed, packed. And no one really knew what to expect. And we saw it and it was stunning. It was a great experience. You can't get that with Netflix. You can't get that with Prime. But Netflix and Prime are just flying high. I think Netflix just announced over 200 million subscribers not that long ago as well. So there's lots to talk about, lots of interesting. So this is kind of a fun episode. We're getting close to the end of season two of the Sidcast. This is the second to last episode. Episode number 89 is what this one is. Second to last in season two. And next week when I release the last episode of the season, I'll share a little bit more about a few things that I have in mind and that I'm planning for season three. One last note about this episode. You will hear some audio problems in the last 20 minutes of the podcast. They're not too severe, but I have to apologize for them. I just decided after listening to this and talking to the engineers about this, that we're making it as clear as we possibly can. But there are a couple of bumps in the road, but the conversation is just so interesting. I wanted to keep it all in the podcast so you can pull up a chair and listen to Sid Gannis and some of his stories. So let's go to the episode and talk to Sid Gannis. Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I'm here with Sid Gannis in Los Angeles. Hello, Sid. How do you do, Sid? How are you? Very good. Very good. You're an SID, and I'm an SYD. <laughs> oh, well, then maybe we should not go any further. Uh-oh. That's it. Conflict. <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell you, I'm in the movie business. I know a few Sids and Sidneys. So I'm Sid, and I've worked with Sidney Poitier. So we talk to each other. And over the years, I've been Sydney. I've been Sid. Only with Sydney, he's Sydney. He's the <laughs> one and only Sydney. I'm yeah. Sid. A wonderful, great guy. But no Sydney. I'm plain old Sid in his yeah. world. And for you, you're plain old SYD. That's right. We'll make it work. So Sid, why don't you tell us about how you broke into the move business? which is, you know, probably still today, everybody's dream or a lot of people's dreams. Yeah. Well, I didn't break into the movie business. I broke into the entertainment business mm -hmm. when I was a kid, when I was an 18-year-old kid. And there I was at Brooklyn College in Brooklyn, New York, not knowing which way was up or down and trying to understand just what I was doing at the ripe old age of 18. And I decided that what would be best for me would be to leave Brooklyn College, not continue on and figure out what was next. So I did. I quit school is what I did. 
And I came home and I said to my mother, hey, mom, I just quit Brooklyn College. And she said, okay, Sydney, now what are you going to do? And I must say, I didn't, it wasn't even in my consciousness that I had to do anything. I was my mother and father's son. We were a lower middle class family living in Brooklyn. Dad was a cab driver. Mom was a housewife. So there it was in front of me. What are you going to do now, Sydney? So Sydney had to figure out what to do. So the next thing I did was look at the New York Times. In those days, there were things called want ads, <laughs> classified ads. They were called want ads. And, you know, they were today's version of uh, Internet job seeking. And there it was. I saw it. It said office boy. That's another term that's anachronistic in these days. Office boy. It's like an assistant or a trainee. Office boy wanted in show business publicity office. I thought I grew up in a time when television was fairly new and I was fascinated by it. And show business was Milton Berle on television. So I thought, boy, oh boy, wouldn't it be nice to be around that atmosphere? So I answered the ad. It said, you know, must want to be in show business, office boy. I answered the ad. And a few days later, I got a note back from the guy I wrote to, because what you had to do, of course, is mail your request to work, not click your request to work, but mail it to a P.O. box. I did. A few days later, I got a response back from this guy who said, thank you very much, but we filled the job. So I took that note and I put it on the kitchen table and I left it there on the kitchen table. That afternoon, it so happened that my Uncle Phil and my Aunt Estelle came over for a visit. Many in the family lived in the same neighborhood in Brooklyn. Aunt Estelle and Uncle Phil came over and Uncle Phil said, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking for a job, Uncle Phil. I said, look, here, I just applied for a job and I didn't get it. And Uncle Phil looked at the note and Professor Finkelstein, you know what Uncle Phil said to me? What? He said, I know that guy. I know that guy. Uncle Phil said, I know that guy. And he called that guy and I got the job. I got the job as an office boy in a public relations office on Broadway for Broadway shows and individual clients, 50 bucks a week. I worked there for three years, took six months off and went into the Army Reserve, but worked there for three years. And by the end of three years, was making $70 a week. And my job was getting the coffee, delivering the copy backstage at the Broadway theaters. No cell phones, no internet, no nothing. So delivering the messages backstage, that means the glory and beauty and excitement of going backstage, stage door on Broadway and delivering a note to Anna Maria Alberghetti and Anne Bancroft and Ethel Merman and on and on and on and on and on. And it was just heaven for me. I was in the atmosphere of it all. And at the same time, I was learning from the others in my office, the pros, the professionals. And sure enough, after three years, actually, Uncle Phil called. Uncle Phil said, hey, I have a friend at 20th Century Fox who's looking for a young publicist now, and why don't you go talk to him? And I did, and that's when I broke into the movie business, because I got a job in New York City at Fox on 56th Street and 10th Avenue, and it was my first moment in the movie business. And my job was I was the staff writer, so I was the publicity writer. I'd write publicity press releases and, you know, learned and 
from that point on, moved ahead. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about it. Absolutely. That's great, Sid. And so right away, there's a few things that jump out for modern day listeners, right? Well, you know, as you pointed out, there are want ads and you have to mail letters. But you know what's <laughs> the same is you knew someone, in this case, your uncle, and he opened the door for you. And I don't think that's changed nearly as much as pretty much every other part of your story. And the other thing I point out is, well, you were there and you had a good time, but you were learning. It was all about learning. Professor Finkelstein, both of those things, the first part, it's called luck, L-U-C-K, simple Mm -hmm. as that. Uncle Phil knew the guy. Uncle Phil was in the restaurant business, and he worked for a chain of restaurants called Rikers in New York, but they had some very high-end restaurants like the Four Seasons and the Forum of the Twelve Seasons, so he'd be with showbiz people all the time. So pure luck that he came over that afternoon. And the other part of it is, yeah, learn what the heck. There were all these professionals all around me all the time, and they were willing to take a minute with me. Most of them were, anyway, willing to take a minute with me and say, have a look, Sid. So you learn by osmosis, I think, Professor Finkelstein. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And by the way, those people in the early days that you were learning from, did you ever run across them years later when you really moved up and were a major player in the entertainment industry? Yeah, from time to time, I have. I'm happy to say I have. And always thrilling for me from time to time, see those men and women who I work with back then. Yeah, it was great. So I don't want to fast forward through decades of career, but you've worked with some of the most interesting people in Hollywood and the entertainment industry. You mentioned Sidney Poitier as one kind of legendary example, I guess a friend as well. But I think you and I first talked in the context of some work I was doing about George Lucas and Star Wars and the rise of industrial light and magic. Uh, Uh And you were working on that team as well. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what that was like when you were working with Lucas and you kind of saw him and uh, helped him get to where he ended up. You know, it's funny. Last week, my wife and I were invited to a little party. The little party was to celebrate the 50th anniversary of American Zoetrope, Francis Coppola's company. Sure enough, on December 12th, 50 years ago, that company was established and he had this little kind of intimate event and George was there. George Lucas was there because they've been pals since the beginning of George's career. Francis was like his mentor. So there I was in the midst of these two combination pals, colleagues, and God knows icons in this business. And I got to tell you, to this day, I'm thrilled to be in the midst of artists. I'm not an artist, so I dream about and thrilled to be around artists. And there was George, everybody a little older, God knows 50 years older than when we all met. I knew Francis even before that. And then I did work for George. I worked for George for six years after Star Wars. And while Empire Strikes Back was getting ready to go into production, and I worked with him through Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark and Indy 2 and other things. Kagemusha, uh, Kurosawa's movie, Kagemusha, and others that George and Francis, for that matter, because sometimes Francis was involved, were willing to uh, help other filmmakers with, like Kurosawa, getting Kagemusha made at 20th Century Fox. 
And it was a great six years of my life, I must say, filled with the excitement of Star Wars being the biggest film ever. And to this day, one that still resonates as an important part of the film culture, cinema culture. And George is George. You know, George is an interesting filmmaker in many respects. And, you know, when somebody says he's interesting, that means he's curious. That means he's wonderful. And who knows what else he is? George is, you know, a reticent artist who would prefer to be completely out of the spotlight on the one hand. On the other hand, he has no choice but to be in the spotlight as this could be. I'm not sure about this. Maybe he's the most successful filmmaker ever. Could be. Could very well be in terms of his own riddle. Yeah. Yeah. Use a few words to describe him. Obviously, curious, incredibly successful reticent. I guess that's part of his reputation. He's a quiet person, but it's kind of surprising for most people to see what he created. So how can that be? I don't know, but I can give you the example of it, a personal example of it. Would you like to hear? I would. Okay. So every July 4th, George would have a July 4th party at this land that eventually became Skywalker Ranch. But back in those days, it was being developed into Skywalker Ranch, but it was just developed land. That's all it was. No buildings on it. So we'd have this July 4th party. And one July 4th, there I was. And it so happened, I was chatting with George. And it so happened that Steven Spielberg was there also. Just so happened. That was the moment in time when I was having a conversation with them. And two little kids, two boys, came up to the three of us, looked at the three of us, and one kid said to me, to me, Mr. Lucas, can I have your autograph? (laughs) George was standing right there, right next to me. And I said, I'm not George. He's George Lucas. And the kid looked at him and said, no, you are. You're George (laughs) Lucas. (laughs) To me. So he was not in the spotlight and chose to stay out of it. He was busy. He was busy editing films. He's like a film editor. What does he do? I don't want to say best of all, but what does he love most of all? Film editing. He understands the value of editing in terms of storytelling and has said it to me and not just to me, but he said it publicly. It's the most interesting and the most fun, I think, you know, eventually the most results come out of the final edit. But if you're an editor, what do you want to do? You want to sit in a dark room and edit away without people, you know, bugging you about too much. And of course, George had this big company, Lucasfilm, which still exists today, even though he doesn't own it. And he had others, including myself, looking after Lucasfilm. Yeah. So when you were working with him, it was Empire. Was that the film that was in the works at that time? Empire Strikes Back was about to go into production. Okay. And what were you doing with him? What was your role? In those days, my main job was, you know, he needed somebody to run a combination of communication with the studios. And in those days, the studios were Fox for the Star Wars films and Paramount for the um, Indiana Jones movies. So he needed somebody who would be willing to talk to them so that he didn't have to. And he needed somebody who knew his or her way around marketing. And I was the guy. So you were there for, you said, for six years. Did he change during that time period? I mean, did you notice? Because he just became more and more famous, more and more kind of blockbuster movies coming out. Not once or twice, but it was just being like everyone was amazing. I told you that I saw him a couple of weeks ago. He hasn't changed. He's still the same. During that time, he did get divorced and just now recently remarried, not recently, a few years ago, remarried to a wonderful, great woman. His former wife was a great woman also. 
we're friends with her, a film editor, Marsha Lucas, who helped him with Star Wars, immeasurably helped him with Star Wars, with episode four. But no, I wouldn't say he's changed. He's gotten more wealthy all the time and has changed his point of view. He's less interested in film now and more interested in education and concentrating on education. And in fact, is putting his money where his mouth is and working in the world of education in his own company called Edutopia. But in addition to that, working with universities and public schools and certainly in the San Francisco area and is right in the midst of building an art museum, which will house his collection of art, not just Star Wars art, but art, art. Where was So changed in that sense. Professor Finkelstein. Yeah, so he's giving back and focused on education. I would say so. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Steven Spielberg, another legend. So do you know him well? Tell us what he's like. (laughs) He's a nice Jewish boy from Arizona. I mean, he's a consummate artist, and he knows the art of film backwards and forwards, knows how to do it in such an interesting and unique way, movie after movie. My goodness, he's making his first musical film right now. First time in this whole big, long career of his. He's making, or I should say remaking, West Side Story. I can't wait to see it. I want to see West Side Story. As a film goer, I want to see West Side Story. How, Stephen? You know, the myth about Hollywood is that everybody lives in some ivory tower or and, you know, don't know the basics in life. It's just not true. I mean, successful people around the business are successful and people and often have the very same values as most of us, most all of us have. Mm-hmm. Spielberg has a bunch of kids and a great wife, Kate. He's a family man. I guess probably somebody might be able to correctly say, Sid, come on, he's Spielberg. And that might be true in certain sense. But on the other hand, you know, the way I know him, you ask me how I know him. I know him as a guy. We can yak about movies for sure. Our mutual friends, George Lucas being one of them, his good friend, George, You know, I can't say anything extraordinary about him other than on a movie set, he's the fastest man alive. He's amazing. He knows exactly what he wants. He knows, and his crew knows, you know, once he tells them, they know exactly what he wants and how to get it. So where a director would have 22 setups in a day, Spielberg would have 37 setups in a day. He's so adept at it all. Pretty amazing. You mentioned another legend earlier, Francis Ford Coppola, who I guess you knew very early days. I don't know what the last movie is that he made. His daughter is in the movie business, obviously, and very successful, Sophia. But Francis Ford Coppola. So these are three great directors and filmmakers. You've worked with them. You've observed your friends with them. I mean, what really explains it? I take it they're all quite different in their style and how they go about doing what they do, but they're all tremendously successful. What can you share with us about They're all very different. You're right about that. They're all very different in the way they approach their work. I've worked with all of them. They're very different in the way they approach their work. They really love movies. I can tell you something. I love movies. I love movies. And the older I get and the more I've been in this business, the more I absolutely understand that I love movies and why I love movies. It's an amazing art form. It just is. It's art. And and I think I said to you before, lucky for me, a kid from Brooklyn, able to be around artists and art. 
So that's a part of it. It's my own insecurity and this stuff that makes me feel whole on the one hand. On the other hand, it's the wonder of seeing the creation of this art. And all three of those guys are fine artists. The Godfather, for goodness sakes. American Graffiti? Are you kidding me? close encounters of the third kind and on 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 and on. Sid, who are some of your other favorite directors? We just talked briefly about three superstars. I'm not saying you necessarily compare them to those three, but are there any others that you think really have stood out in any particular way over the last several decades? Well, the thing is, there's always a new director. There's always an interesting new director who kind of sticks out and establishes himself or herself and then, you know, works their way through the business. I mean, I can think of there's a guy who made a uh, German film years ago called The Lives of Others, whose first name is Florian, then he has a big, long German last name, who turns out to be one of those great artists. He made a movie that proved it, a great artist. You know, you go to the more popular American artists. How can one not acknowledge Marty Scorsese? Because he just plain old is. Have you seen the movie The Irishman yet? So The Irishman came out in Thanksgiving 2019. And yes, I did see it. All three and a half hours of it. And And so did I. All three and a half hours of it. It was spectacular. It had every famous and even less famous actor that we've seen in the movies that played in any of Mafia movies. It was quite something to see. (laughs) It's an interesting movie to see, Professor, because I too, I sat for three and a half hours. And yes, for about 10 minutes, I said, oh, but how does this compare with the Godfather trilogy? There were three Godfather movies, one, two, and three. How does it compare? A mistake to go to the movies and in the middle of it start comparing it to another movie. But nevertheless, there I was doing it. And I thought, well, of course, it's epic. Like the Godfather movies, it's epic. And I think that's the key with a guy like Marty and any of these other guys, any men and women who we're talking about. They do their work in epic style, even if it's a tiny little small movie. Marty does and Florian does and some of the women directors who are working today are doing it. There's a woman called Kimberly Pierce who did a movie called, I think it's called Boys Don't Cry. I'm not sure, but I think it's called Boys Don't Cry. She made it 15 years ago or something like that. And she's working right now and shooting something right now. But she made this epic movie called Boys Don't Cry about 15, 20 years ago. You choose to use the word epic. It may not apply exactly up and down the line, but it's an art form that has so many possibilities and more and more today than ever before. More and more today. The technology is amazing. Professor Finkelstein, I've been in this business for many, 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 many years now. So therefore, I was around when the technology was amazing back then. And now, in a whole different way, it's amazing. So what do you think about Netflix, Amazon Prime, now Apple TV, all the giant tech companies are Hollywood companies now. So how does that change things in the entertainment industry? I mean, these are tech giants Um, that are in. Well, it definitely changes things on the one hand. And on the other hand, I'm not sure it does change things. I'll give you an example. You and I both said that we've seen the movie The Irishman. You saw it in a movie theater, in a cinema, didn't you? 
No, actually, I was watching on Netflix the day after Thanksgiving. And there lies the difference. I saw it in the cinema. I saw it in a movie theater. I can't imagine watching that movie on basically a television screen, uh, no matter how big that television screen is. I can't imagine understanding the nuance of that movie on a small screen. And I think that although Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and all the rest of them are of great value and tell great stories. Plain and simple, there are some times when you need to do what I do, which is go to the movies more than I, you know, sit and watch my entertainment on a television screen on, from Netflix or Amazon, no matter how great they are. I try to do it in a movie theater. It doesn't always happen that way. I watch the whole Mrs. Maisel series. Now I'm watching the new one on the tube, which works in that sense. But in terms of the business model, it's valid. It's totally valid. We as filmmakers turn to the media, the new media, the Netflix and the Amazons constantly to do our work, to make our movies and our television series, often with great success and great financial success also. But in terms of entertainment as I know it and believe that people should consume it, there's nothing like having that collective experience of being in a space and watching a film, a very funny film, a very scary film, a very dramatic film, a very teary film with other people who you don't know sitting next to you and responding and reacting alongside you. Yeah, no, so I, it's a double-edged sword as far as I'm concerned. Best way I can answer your question. I completely understand that. And when I'm seeing a great film or a good film and I'm in a movie theater, there is something about that common shared experience. But actual quality of the films, you know, they've won many awards, whether they're Emmy or even Oscars as well, I think. And so the quality, yep. I feel like these movies for Netflix and Amazon, and now Apple, they're being made by some of the same talent that have been making movies and that are starring. You know, Reese Witherspoon is in the morning show on Apple. So many great stars have moved to Netflix are also doing stuff for Netflix and Amazon and Apple. Absolutely true. Yep. Yeah, I would put it this way. It's what we live with these days, but it's better than that. It's what we live with and enjoy and reap the benefit of these days. That's filmmakers now. I'm talking about as filmmakers. And as a consumer, well, you know, this is the good news and the bad news. You don't have to leave your living room or bedroom or wherever the heck your tube is to see very fine work. Yeah, it's funny. You just use the word we all use for TV for years, the tube because it was a tube. tube. And again, <laughs> we have to do some translation for people that are 35 and under or 30 <laughs> and under. What the heck are these guys talking about? So Sid, you were the president of the Academy of Motion Arts and Sciences. And that's something I want to talk about with you. First of all, how does somebody get a job like that? How do you apply for a job like that? How do you get selected for a job like that? <laughs> you don't apply for it. By the way, it's called the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. That's its name. And you definitely don't apply for it. I was a member of the Academy for many years. I got to be a member years and years and years ago. There's another good story of luck. Can I tell it? Should I tell it? Yes, go ahead. I was a young kid again, but there was this Academy, this movie Academy. I was a New Yorker, and there was this Academy and the Oscars and all that. And again, it fascinated me. And I thought, well, why can't I be a member of the Academy? So I applied and didn't get it. I was turned down. But at that same time, I was working with 
Gregory Peck, who was the president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And we worked together and we had a good experience. He made a picture with Anthony Quinn called Behold the Pale Horse years ago. He was still living and working in New York for Columbia Pictures. And then he went on his way and so did I. But when I was turned down by the Academy, I decided, I thought about my Uncle Phil and the good fortune I had many, many years before that. So I wrote him a letter. I said, dear Mr. Peck, I'm a young guy. We just worked together on Behold a Pale Horse, and I'd love to become a member of the Academy. And I said, you know, I'm a young New Yorker and you know, ready to help the Academy. And sure enough, he did help me become a member. You know, you have to have certain qualifications, and I had all those qualifications, even though I was still pretty new at the game. And I got to be a member. And from that point on, because I was interested in the industry and the academy, which represents the industry, basically, and is, I guess you could say it's like the public relations arm of the industry. It promotes movies. I thought, well, maybe I can be on the board of governors. And sure enough, I got on the board of governors and was on the board of governors for many years. And then it was time for a new president to come up. And I thought, well... I don't know, let's take a shot. And, you know, it's one of those things where you can't lobby the board to vote for you for president. The board votes, the board of governors. In those days, it was about 40 men and women, mostly men, decided who'd be the next president. You can't lobby them. But I was who I was. And sure enough, I became the president and remained the president for four years. And it was great, great experience. And and the job of the president of the academy really is to be in charge of the membership. So in those days, there were 6,000 filmmakers around the world. Today, there are 9,000 filmmakers around the world because of a concerted effort to draw more qualified members and create gender parity, racial parity, gender parity, and international parity. So there are 9,000 now, but back then there were 6,000. It's my job to be their leader. And, you know, I was very happy to do it, except for one thing, Professor Finkelstein. What's that? The thing is that every member of the Academy, they're all filmmakers. Every one of them is a filmmaker. They're production designers and they're editors and they're actors and they're directors and they're producers and they're executives. Everybody thinks they know exactly how that show should be. So everybody had great ideas, they thought and sent those great ideas to me. This is the Oscar show specifically? Yeah. Yeah, because they were all showbiz people. So therefore they all felt, not all, you know what I mean, many of them felt that they had some really unbeatable ideas to put on the show. And I had to deal with all that, but that was okay. You tell them very kindly, thank you, what a great idea, or thanks, no, we're not going to do it this way this year, maybe some other time. But it was a great gig, and I had it for four years. Who was the host of the I had four different, I had three different hosts in the four years that I did it. One guy did it twice. Here's the way it happened. Sure enough, one night at a board of governors meeting of the academy, they said, okay, Sid Gannis, you're the president of the academy. I couldn't wait to call my wife. I couldn't wait to call my wife, but I did until the end of the meeting. Right away, I called Nancy, and I said, hey, Nancy, I'm the president of the Academy. You know what she said to me? What? She said, great, get John Stewart. So I did. And John Stewart hosted the show for me twice, Ellen DeGeneres once, and Hugh Jackman once. So I had four pretty good shows. That's a tough job, I think. 
Which one? Hosting? That's yeah, a tough job. I think so. That's a really tough job. Didn't Billy Crystal do it for a bunch of years? Billy did it for many years, and he was absolutely great at it. Just great and, at it. Yeah. Was it Bob Hope that used to do it years and years ago? Am I remembering that right? Yeah, Bob Hope did it for year after year. So did Johnny Carson. He did it for year after year. And they were all good. And one thing I learned, you know, when I did my stint, my four shows, I did four of those shows. It's good when you're a performer. Billy Crystal is a performer. He knows how to stand up in front of an audience and put it out there. And, of course, Bob Hope did and Johnny Carson did. And Hugh Jackman did also. John was different. John came at it from a different way. John Stewart, he was a host, but a different kind of a host. And Ellen, of course, was just brilliant. But it's great when you're a kind of song and dance man, the way Bob Hope was and Hugh Jackman was. And Billy, God knows Billy Crystal. He was the perfect guy for doing it and being spontaneous. It's a live show. So you got to feel what's happening in the room and on the stage. And then when you come out again, respond to what's happening in the room and on the stage. Not easy on live television. What happens during the commercial breaks? It's a combination of things. The audience has been sitting for a while, loves to get up and stretch, sometimes run out and go to the restrooms. Also, the bars are open in the back of the auditorium so they can find a drink. You can't bring your drink back into the house. And then often, especially lately, the host will just yak with the audience because people in the room know what it is to do live television. Mostly they know what it is to do live television. So, you know, a host will come out and say, Hey, how we doing? How's it going? How you feeling? What should I be doing up here? You know, just banter with the audience. So that's what happens during the commercial. But I think everybody, lo- I love to stretch, man, <laughs> get out of my seat and stretch a little bit. What happened, it was a couple of years ago with La La Land, and that must have been, I mean, that wasn't under your watch, but that must have just... No, it wasn't under my watch, but there we were in the audience. I can share with you the way I saw it. You know, now Warren Beatty announces that La La Land is the winner, best picture. Audience people, you know, the, the producers and the people from La La Land come up on stage. This is all before my very eyes, our very eyes. But at the same time, and this I don't think was ever on camera. I'm not sure because I never did see it on camera. I could see the stage manager. I could see a guy I knew. I knew him because I worked with him in the four years that I was doing. I could see the stage manager hustling around and kind of moving around the stage. And I could tell, I said to my wife, I said, Something's happening here. Something's not right. And sure enough, the Pricewaterhouse guy made a mistake, a big, gigantic mistake. But the wonderful producer, one of the producers of La La Land, took over. He was great. I don't know whether you remember this on television or whether you saw it even. It was the producer of La La Land who said, no, there's been a mistake here. This shouldn't be us. It should be... um, Moonlight. It's not that he saved the day. He just had the presence of mind to speak of it. Right. On that, camera. That must have been. Great, a, great moment. 
there was quite a moment on television, live television, because it, as you said, it's live. It was quite a moment on live television. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's just that you never quite know what's going to happen. There was yeah. one year, now it's a while ago, it was about 20 years ago, I think now, when the Oscars themselves, the statuettes, was stolen and were not delivered to the Academy. The freight company had them pilfered. <laughs> not had wow. them, but they were pilfered from the freight company. So there was all that hubbub for a little while. And because the Oscars are a symbol of excellence, they're a symbol of excellence and the best. So they're iconic, not sacred, but iconic. And, you know, therefore they hold a certain stature. And when something like that happens, you say, oh my God, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? A totally legitimate question, you know. So you figure it out. And when Pricewaterhouse makes a mistake, you figure it out. What happened with the stolen, the pilfered Oscars? Did they get that Oscars? Yes. Eventually they were found. They were found some days later in a dumpster in the Los Angeles area. Oh, goodness. In the L.A. area. So I can only imagine, Professor, can't you? I mean, they're the Oscars. They're hot. You can't fence them easily. So I don't remember the details anymore, but whoever took them, thumped them. (laughs) And they were found. You can't fence them. uh, I love that word. Funny word, isn't it? I wonder where that came from. Who knows? So, you know, the world of Hollywood has changed a lot, especially in the last several years with Harvey Weinstein's story and many other stories and the rise of the Me Too movement. And so you've had a position at the very top of this industry for years and years, and you know many uh, extremely talented people that are men and women, but you give us a little bit of a sense of, is this a bigger problem in Hollywood than somewhere else? Is this something that was long overdue that should have been recognized? Is someone like a Harvey Weinstein really the bad apple? And there, there are others, but not nearly that many. As you know, there are people that say this is part of the culture. And that's an attack, of course, on Hollywood from various political parties. But I'm really interested in your point of view about this. Okay, sure. I say to you, thank goodness for Harvey, the bad guy. Thank goodness for Harvey, the bad guy, because, yep, he was the straw that broke the camel's back. And yes, he was so blatantly bad that finally the straw on the camel's back broke and the world, the women, Forget the world. The women who were affected by him collectively, thank goodness, said no dice. I have to tell you something, Professor. I've known Harvey for 45 years, maybe 50 now. Who knows? I've known him pretty much my whole career from when he started. I was working at Lucasfilm when when he came to me, when he called me one day and said, can I come visit with you? Because he had his first movie or second movie or something, and he wanted my opinion about how to market it. And from that point on, we knew each other and would talk to each other from time to time, never worked with him, but talked to him all the time and kind of considered him certainly an acquaintance, if not a kind of a friend, a kind of a friend. I never, ever, 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 ever knew that he was a bad guy. I knew he was a tough guy. I never knew he was a bad guy. I just didn't. My wife, Nancy, says to me, how could you not know that he was a scoundrel? I just didn't. My naivete, I guess. But thank goodness for him, because that allows the movement that started as Me Too and now is a worldwide movement against abuse to be what it is today and to flourish the way it is today. And it's about time. 
of course. And is it our industry, my industry? No, of course not, Professor. No, it's the unfortunate state of the world and the people in it and many men in it and I presume some women in it also. But no, I definitely don't think that it's my business and my industry. No, it's just not. I don't know how to prove that to you exactly, except look around. People from all industries now, the bad guys, mostly guys, are coming to light. I think that's more true than not. Do you sense any changes that you've seen yourself in just how business is done in Hollywood? In the, I'm not going to say the post-Me Too era. We're in the middle of Me Too, and it might continue right. for a long, long time. And maybe should always be a reminder for us. But have you noticed anything that's changed in particular I can speak for myself more than I can of the industry in total. I myself, part of the way I communicate is by being close and I must say by touching. I just do, you know, when I communicate with somebody, I even as I say it to you, I wonder about it. I touch them. I'll touch their arm or something like that, men and women. And I wonder about that now. I'm much more cautious about it. So there's that change. And then there are more rules about how to work in the business. For instance, on a shooting set, when one is doing an intimate scene, there are rules. Rules changed. Before, a director would say, okay, everybody off the set. Now, there's a rule that says everybody off the set, you know, to the benefit of the artist doing the work and the director directing the work. So... Yeah, the rules are changing, but more important than not, it's the personal caution that we all feel about how to conduct ourselves. Thank goodness. You know, it's a good thing. I mean, you look at a movie from 20 years ago and you Mm -hmm. see what goes on on screen and you say, no, 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 you can't do that today. What are you referring to? Well, I'm not referring to anything specific, but I'm thinking of a Doris Day Rock Hudson comedy from the 60s and 70s where guys are leering at women in a way that you just wouldn't do today. You wouldn't leer like that. I'll give you another one. Men who would perform in blackface, very easily and commonly perform in blackface. I don't think you can do that today. Pretty clear you can't do that today. It's a slur. It's a racial slur, obviously. We've learned that you can't do that today. Billy Crystal would do Sammy Davis Jr., It was great. He did him great. He knew how to do it, and he did it in blackface. Not anymore. Yeah. There's more empathy and understanding of how other people are perceiving what maybe the majority considers funny or amusing. Unconscious uh, bias, Professor. Unconscious Um, bias. Well, it's not even knowing that that's a question to ask, not even thinking about it, whether it's conscious or unconscious, it doesn't even enter the consciousness. There have been some big changes, and I feel like There are many more to come, and again, not just in Hollywood or the entertainment industry, but across society. Well, we're almost out of time, but I'd like to ask you, if I can, two last questions that we found on the SIDCast to be, people really are keen to hear the answers, and they're both a little bit personal, but one is certainly all about advice. I'll give you the first one, and it's, you know, you mentioned your wife. How long have you been married? Heading for 33, I think. Okay, so people are fascinated by how especially in this day and age, how people meet others, especially when there's no online dating or when there wasn't online dating. And so I always ask people if they're willing to share how they met their partner or their spouse or their their (laughs) wife. Did you do that? Yeah, 
happy to. There I was at Lucasfilm in 1982. Raiders of the Lost Ark was finished shooting, and I, for George, produced a documentary about the making of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and we edited it, and it turned out pretty good, and George decided to give that documentary to PBS, and through KQED television, a PBS station in San Francisco. So he did, and now it was time for the KQED folks to come over and talk about it for the first time. Now, KQED was, you know, a public television station in San Francisco. That means that they had no money and, you know, were always scraping around and did everything on a budget and, you know, didn't know from big Hollywood stuff, even though we were in Hollywood, we were living and working in the Bay Area. But now the woman who eventually became my wife, Nancy, and two other guys from KQED came over to Lucasfilm in San Rafael, California. The way Nancy says it, she says the first thing she had to do was go out and buy some clothes because they wore jeans and Birkenstocks and, you know, they they didn't know to have big fancy meetings. And then she says, she exaggerates this completely, but she says she bought heels and she said her heels sank into the carpet at Lucasfilm. That's an exaggeration, Professor. <laughs> but up she came to my office with those two other guys. I was busy elsewhere, but they were ushered into my office and now it was time for me to come to the meeting. So sure enough, I walked into my office, and here's the answer to your question. There she was, and I took really and truly. I think about it right now, Professor, and I think, yep. I took one look at Nancy, had no idea who she was or what she was, and said, oh, my goodness gracious. <laughs> she was beautiful and gorgeous. And, and that was the beginning of my meeting her, our courtship, which lasted a number of years, and then our eventual marriage in 1986. So that's a great story. It could even be a movie. It's a love at first sight. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, last question for you, Sid. And it's a question about advice. If you could imagine going back in time, magically back in time, to when you were a 21-year-old kid, I guess still in Brooklyn, and you kind of just sit down next to yourself back in time, and you'd lean over and you say, 21-year-old Sid Gannis, there's one thing you really need to know. There's one thing you want to think about. There's one thing you need to know about life. What would that be? What would you share to yourself back when you're just starting out? Oh, boy. Hey, Sid, stay curious about everything that you don't know about. Stay curious about everything that you don't know about and find out what's up in the world And be a good guy and be with your fellow human being. Be with whoever it is you have to deal with, even though you've never seen or heard anything like that person before, because it'll probably enrich you in some way and maybe be of value to you. Be a good person. I think in the end, I'd say to you, be a good person and go after what you're interested in and don't be ridiculously aggressive. Be wise and be confident. And by the way, Professor Finkelstein, I have not been all of those things. I just gave myself advice to be. Exactly. exactly. But I try. Yeah. Well, what a great conversation, Sid. I really appreciate you being on the SIDcast, being on my podcast. Really have enjoyed the chat. Thank you so much. Well, you're welcome, SYD. SID, ready to sign off.
<laughs> Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the SIDCAST. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.